0: Good afternoon and welcome. I'm a new face, so I'll introduce myself. My name is Jamie Bosket, and as of three and a half days, I am honored to be the new President and CEO of the Virginia Historical Society. I will tell you that uh, if there was any one particular constant uh, love of my life, it has been history. And to be here to join this team and to be able to tell a story like the story of, of Virginia is, is truly a life honor. And I'm, I'm so happy to be here. So thank you all for joining us today and, and for that warm welcome, which I appreciate. I'll have to tell you also, this is, of course, my first Banner Lecture. And I'm thrilled uh, to see such a great turnout for it. Uh, Being at other organizations around the state and up down the East Coast, uh, I spent the last 10 years at George Washington's Mount Vernon, and we, from a distance, admired this great tradition of these Banner Lectures. Uh, To have something this strong after 29 years is truly remarkable. 29 years this has been going on. And, of course, going strong, but why should we be surprised? Here we are in this incredible institution, which now is, of course, is the oldest cultural institution in the Commonwealth, is the fourth oldest state historical organization in our nation, is one of the preeminent state history museums, and is 186 years old and going strong. So it seems rather fitting that this lecture series would take off with such success and continue on. I'd like to on that front, express my thanks um, for everyone who has come before me and to establish this institution as such a, a rich resource as it is. And in particular, one very special man who I've had the opportunity to talk with regularly during the search process and now uh, uh, upon my arrival. And that's Charlie Bryan. And I think if any one person I could aspire to in being successful in this new job, he is it. And, of course, he is the namesake that this lecture series is endowed for. Uh, So I think that we want to express our appreciation to Charlie as well. I'd also like to thank the Richmond Times Dispatch, whose support helps sponsor these lectures. And similarly, our collective thanks to the Society of Colonial Wars of the State of Virginia, for co-sponsoring this particular lecture, which we're very thankful for, and we're joined by a few representatives today. We have with us Ben Emerson, uh, Peter Broadbent, Taylor Corden, and my good friend, Charlie Grant. Gentlemen, thank you so much. And last, but certainly not least, I'd like to express uh, our, our collective appreciation for all of our members. If you would, since I'm new, raise your hand if you're a member of the Virginia Historical Society. That's incredible. That's truly incredible. Well, thank you to all of you. And if you're, if you're not a member, don't feel shamed yet. But please, <laughs> let's fix this right away. I couldn't think of a better place more deserving of support. And all of these wonderful programs are reliant on member support. So thank you for that. Um, now, before we proceed, just a few announcements I've been asked to make. Uh, first, we'd like to remind you all, please, to silence your cell phones. Uh, We don't want to interrupt this wonderful speaker we have today. And uh, as usual, lunch from Sally Bells. I have not yet had the privilege, but I'm sure it would be wonderful, and they will be available for purchase after the lecture. And as you continue silencing your phones and all your gadgets, I'll mention a few upcoming announcements. Our next Banner Lecture will take place at noon on Thursday, March 16th. And that day Brent Tarter will be here to deliver a lecture entitled A Saga of the New South, Race Law and Public Debt in Virginia. Our next see you in the class program will take place on Thursday, March 9th at 5:30, and Alexander Barnes and Major General Tim Williams will teach the first of a two-part class that night entitled To Hell with the Kaiser: America Prepares for War, 1916 to 1918. The second part will take place in the night of the 16th. And uh, we hope that uh, you'll enjoy that uh, examination of America's preparation as we enter the First World War. And also, if you haven't seen it, particularly for all the members who receive free admission to all of our great uh, special exhibitions, Toys of the 50s, 60s, and 70s that was uh, originally uh, uh, curated by the Minnesota Historical Society is now here. Will be here through the summer. But uh, I encourage you to come sooner rather than later and see it. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And I will admit, and you're looking at me, this young guy standing in front of you. Now, I, uh, I did, in fact, know several of these toys, and they <laughs> did play a role in my life. <laughs> uh, so please, then, uh, with all just these few updates, go ahead to our, our website, vahistorical.org, to get all the other updates on our classes, lectures, our wonderful bus treat, uh, trips, uh, behind-the-scenes tours, uh, and so forth. So now, on to our our speaker. Uh, Today, uh, mail order brides are usually assumed to be a desperate and exploited group of women. However, the history of Jamestown's mail order bride casts doubt on this belief. And I think we'll learn that today. Life in early American colonies was very difficult. But one of the biggest threats was actually the absence of marriageable women. As a result, marital immigration was seen as a crucial uh, an essential piece to Virginia colony's success. Potential female immigrants were wooed in numerous financial and legal incentives, and these benefits all uh, together made male or marriage an attractive option for some of the cent- 17th century women coming to Virginia. Our speaker today, Marsha Zug, is Associate professor, uh, professor of Law at the University of South Carolina, where she teaches family law, advanced family law, and American Indian law. Uh, she's the author of numerous articles and of the book Buying a Bride, an Engaging History of mail Order Marriage, copies of which will be available for sale, and I encourage you to purchase those and have her uh, personalize them after the lecture. Again, thank you all for the warm welcome. Thank you for being here for your support. And now we'll turn it over to Marsha.
1: I am so excited to see so many people excited about mail-order brides. (laughs) I have a different lecture if you want a how-to, but that would be in one of the classroom ones, right? Um, Okay, so I have not done the Virginia lecture before, so I'm excited to talk specifically about Virginia. But people are often interested in how I came to this topic, how did this book come about? So I'm going to talk to you about that for just a moment. I have always been a fan of history. I was a big fan of Little House on the Prairie. I liked Sarah Tall. So I had this image, on the one hand, of the, the heroic mail-order bride of the Old West, right, who helped settle the West, who helped, you know, uh, make America, you know, uh, fulfill the manifesto. <laughs> 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 You caught me. <laughs> uh, yes, fulfill the manifest destiny, right? Uh, so on the one hand, there was that image. But then there was also this other image, right? The image of the poor, desperate, exploited male order bride. Uh, and I was wondering, how do we have these two images? One of them must be wrong. So I came into this project thinking that the modern image Was the correct one, and that the historical image was was incorrect, was what we were viewing history through the rose-colored glasses, and that historically, miller brides were also desperate and exploited and abused, and we're just remembering it wrong. What I found as I was doing the book was that I had it backwards, that historically, miller marriage has been beneficial for the women, for the men, and for the country— And that modern Miller marriage has many of the same benefits that it always has. So, the second question, or the question that then led to, was why did it change? So, the purpose of the book was to describe these two competing views of miller marriage and explain the change from the historic miller brides the hero miller brides to the modern image of the desperate exploited one. So if that sounds interesting, you know, we can talk about some of the later chapters in the Q&A, but I want to focus on the first miller brides. So miller marriage tends to occur when there is a gender disparity. And what happens in Jamestown, Virginia is originally both men and women come over. And that's fine, that's good, that's you know how you settle a colony. But very quickly it became clear that Jamestown wasn't the best place to be. Uh, it may be now, I haven't visited recently, but at the time, not so great. So very quickly, you know, people start dying of disease and famine. Um, Stories come back to England about, there's, you know, a particular horrible one, um, Virginia colonist who slew his wife as she slept in his bosom, cut her in pieces, powdered her, and fed upon her till he had clean devoured all parts, saving her head, because that we don't eat. And, you know, so uh, as soon as, you know, people start dying a lot in early Virginia, Uh, and women stop coming. The men keep coming because the incentives are still there for the male colonists to come, right? They're coming to make their fortunes. Uh, A lot of them are able to do so to get land, to get power and status that they can't back in England. So even though there are high, high risks of coming to Virginia, if it works out for them, the incentives or the benefits are still high enough for them to come, The women, they start hearing about how awful things are in Jamestown, and they say, I don't think so. I'm not interested in doing this. Uh, Jamestown gets the reputation, one of the quotes is, a misery, a hell, a death. I don't know if you want to put that on your tourist brochures, but (laughs) it didn't work so well. So the women stopped coming. Now, this is a problem in Virginia and southern colonies in general, partially because that you don't get in the Northern colonies because the Northern colonies are settled by religious refugees. So they come over as family groups. And even if things are not going so well in the Massachusetts colony, they're fleeing persecution back in Europe. They have an incentive to come. So you don't have the gender disparity up north that you start getting here. Women aren't coming, men are still coming. Um, But men tend not to be big fans of places with no women. And very quickly, the Virginia company realizes this is a problem. So they start uh, some half hearted efforts to encourage women to come, to encourage, specifically, they start trying to encourage families to come. It's not working so well. The men are still coming, but they're doing one of two things either they come, they make their fortune, and then they immediately leave, which is fine for those guys, but not really good for the founding of the colony. If you want to make this colony a real place, you need people to settle here, you need people to have kids, put down roots. Uh, so the fact that they're leaving, you can replace them with the same number of people, but you're not gonna grow at all. And remember, this is also during the time where everybody's racing over to the Western Hemisphere to put down their stakes, to you know, conquer uh, the different lands, and if your colony's not growing, its future is very, very uncertain. So a lot of the men leave after they come back and spend a few years here. The other half of the men, they don't even wait that long. They look around, they say, this place stinks, but you know what, that Indian village over there, they have food, they have shelter, they've got women. (laughs) So they start deserting in droves. And this is problematic for the settling of Jamestown, but it's also problematic for the larger picture. Because you need to, at least on paper, justify colonization, right? How do you justify colonizing a, a area of land that already has people living there, right? And the the justification was religious, cultural superiority. Well... How do you say that you're so superior if all of your people start going to the village next door because they actually think that place is better, right? So this is really hurting the justification for colonization. So they try a number of different things, right? They ban desertions to Indian villages. If you desert to an Indian village, you're hanged, drawn, and quartered. It doesn't matter, right? They're still leaving. Um, The numbers are percentage-wise, astounding. So you know you, you have you know, a census saying there are 60 people in Jamestown. Then there's a, a, a description from a Spanish explorer who is visiting. And he says, oh, it looks like about 40 of the men have left to marry Indian women. There were 60 people there last year, and now 40 of them have gone off to the Indian villages. So the numbers are really, really high. And the Virginia government knows this is a problem but like governments, there's a lot of infighting about it. So it first gets uh, brought to Parliament's attention, to the Virginia Company's attention. They're like all the same people. Um, And the problem is the, the lawyer who brings it to their attention, he says, okay, so we're losing women. We need women. We need to incentivize women. You guys need to do something. Problem is he's not a lord. So a I had to read this like three or four times to figure out what was going on because I'm not a lord either, and I didn't quite understand that telling lords what they're supposed to do is a big no-no at this time. So even though he was right, it didn't matter because he was insolent. So the next day he has to go and like apologize on his knees and promise never to bring it up again. Um, sorry. So for a while, nothing happened. Then they get a new treasure of the Virginia Company. This a few years later. And things are getting very desperate in Jamestown. The colony is really not doing well. Uh, the men are still marrying Indian women. Uh, during this period, you know, probably the most famous white Indian marriage that you all know about, right, is the Pocahontas-John Rolfe marriage. Um, and you may have learned about that marriage as this wonderful union. There's, you know, the uh, the melding of the two cultures. At the time, it was highly problematic. And if you read the letters that Rolf writes to Governor Dean Deal, Dean Deal, I think it is, at the time, uh, he's justifying this marriage and the governor is very against it for all of these reasons that we've been talking about, how if the English culture is so superior, we can't have you marrying with the native women. And Mm -hmm. Deal's like, well, I'm sorry, Rolf is well, she's converted. She's Christian now. It's okay. And he makes all of these, um, religious arguments, all of these various types of pleadings. Eventually the governor says, okay. Uh, but this is a rare, rare case. And it wasn't because the men were uninterested in marrying the Indian women because there was a lot of pushback. And Pocahontas was basically the exception, uh, with regard to government approval. One of the only types of those marriages that the government did wind up sanctioning. Most of the others happen, but they're seen as problematic. And even this one, very iffy. So, what are you going to do? You know, they've told you they're going to kill you if you marry Indian women. Men are still doing it, Um, or they're leaving. So, how do you make the men stay and not marry Indian women? They decide. Uh, Edwin Sandys, who becomes the treasurer at this point, he decides that we're going to bring over women. That's what we'll do. We'll bring over a few hundred uh, nice English women. If the colonists have a choice between the Indian women and the English women, he's very confident that they're going to pick the English women. Um, And then the English women, they have no concerns, are going to leave and go to the Indian villages. They'll get married, they'll settle down, they'll have lots of babies, and the colony will be saved. And this time, the Virginia company says, okay, that sounds like a good idea. They start raising money. And there's a lot of talk about what type of women do we want to come over. Because you have a couple different choices. Uh, You could force women to come over. Right? And that starts to happen, forcing people to come to the Virginia colony becomes quite common. And lots of the colonists are actually forced. Lots of children, lots of servants, they're just rounded up off the streets of London, forced onto a boat, and hey, here's your new home, welcome to Virginia. But they decide specifically not to do that with the women, even though they probably could. Later on, uh, when there are some cases about kidnap Kidnapped men, women, all sorts. Uh, there was a, it, it, it became kind of a thing um, under the head rights system. You would get money if you came over to Virginia and you would get money and land, or you would get money if you brought other people over to Virginia. And they kind of didn't care if those people came over willingly. They would still pay you. So you started to get what were called spirits. These people spirited people off the streets of London over to Virginia. And there was one guy, this may be an exaggeration, but supposedly he spirited away 6,000 people by himself. And when you look at the few cases that come up about this, this is not legal. They, you know, the people who are coming over are supposed to come over willingly. But, you know, they're fined like three shillings. If you steal a horse, you're killed, right? Stealing a, a person? Eh, there are more of them. So it's not that the Virginia company couldn't have gone away with forcing women to come over to Virginia. But they decide that's a really bad plan. Because if we're looking for women to become the founding mothers of the colony, we need women who are invested in this, who want to be here, who... uh, think that this is something good for them and therefore they're not going to get on the first boat back to England. There are other colonial military bride endeavors, particularly Louisiana, where they do the opposite. They first start with an actual milliliter bride program based on the one in Virginia, but then they decide that's kind of expensive, and I'll explain why that is in a second. They decide that's kind of expensive. It's not working out so well. Why don't we just take the women from the Paris penitentiaries That'll work, right? Because, I don't know, like, criminal prostitutes versus not not criminal prostitutes, either or. Uh, It doesn't work well in Louisiana. It's a big, big problem. Uh, The Virginia company recognized that that would be a bad thing. So they are very clear that they want women who are not desperate, who are not forced, who are not sick, Remember, these women are supposed to have a lot of babies. So one of the things that happens with the women who go to Louisiana is um, they all have syphilis, pretty much. Uh, So, again, not good for your fertility. Uh, There's a different program, the FIDERA, that happened up in Canada. These women, they start talking, they're very similar to the Jamestown women. Their fertility apparently is legendary. Okay, if you look at uh, the number of kids they had, they had on average like 16. And if you are French-Canadian, I can't see anyone's hands, but if you're French-Canadian, you are probably descended from them. <laughs> because there were, <laughs> there have been genetic studies on this. 800 feet of rock came, and it's something like 75% of the French-Canadian population is descended from these women. So if you pick your women with care, this program works. <laughs> so Jamestown, the Virginia company, they decide that, uh, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get some nice, healthy, young, willing women to come over and become the founding mothers of Jamestown. Great. Roomful of men decide that this is what they want women to do. Well, they realize, though, that they need the women to agree to this. Right, and I've just described Jamestown as a misery, a hell, a death. So, what are you going to do? Well, you need to start incentivizing them. You need to give them the same kinds of reasons to come over that you're giving the men. The men are willing to uh, risk the dangers of Virginia because they think it's the benefits will outweigh or make these dangers worth taking. So, the reason it's worthwhile for the men money, land, status. So these are the sorts of things that they start offering to the women. So one of the first things they do is they offer them a dowry. Many of the women who wind up coming over are working class women. A lot of them are, so they're not the poorest class. They're not usually rich either, though some of them have connections to lower nobility. You know, if you go through the list, a number of them have, like, uncles who were knights. You know, that probably was something they talked about ad nauseum on the ship over. Well, my uncle's a knight. You know, (laughs) that kind of thing. But most of them (laughs) were in service. And the reason they were in service was because they needed to make enough money, so they had a dowry, so they could get married. So the average age of marriage for a woman in England at this time was 26 years old because they usually had to work about 10 years to get this dowry. One of the things that the Virginia company is offering is a way out of service. Hey, you can skip that 10 years of service. We'll give you your dowry, and you can, you know, go and get married and start your household right now. That's a pretty big incentive. So they give them a dowry. Then they also say, hey, you know what, we'll give you land, too. You know, we'll set aside land. It was known as Maid's Town, uh, a parcel of land for the women who come over. That way, you know, you have your own land, your own property that's not your husband's. Uh, that, you know, that might be something that you couldn't get back in England. Most, you know, almost certainly. Uh, they also, uh, promised them status. So most of these women, like I said, they were working class. They had been servants. These women are now promised the first servants in the, in the colony. They say, as soon as we ship over servants, you will be the first ones to get them. They also say, you're going to be married to a rich guy if you want because there are no women there, so you're going to have your pick of the men, right? And, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, fairly well-off men, the, the planter class, that's who they're going to get to marry. So they get to move up their social status by uh, considering immigration as a male or bride. Uh, they're also promised their choice. So one of the uh, the the rumors, uh, if you're in my world of military prize, brides, there are rumors. You may not know this rumor because it's not, you know, well-known. but So th- they're called the tobacco women or the tobacco brides. And the, this, uh, the, the criticism is that these women were bought. So the men had to pay like 80 pounds of good leaf tobacco when they married these women. And a lot of people who criticize this say that, okay, it was the men who were buying the women, which is not how it was. What it was was that the women got to pick whoever they wanted. The Virginia Company hoped, really strongly hoped, that they would pick the rich guys. And then if they picked the rich guys, then the men had to reimburse the Virginia Company at the cost of the women's passage. But if you look at the correspondence, the Virginia Company is talking about how, well, hopefully they'll marry the rich guys, but if they're, you know dumb and decide to marry the poor guy. We'll let them. You can't stop them. And then we'll just keep an eye on the poor guy and hopefully he'll get rich and one day can reimburse us for it. (laughs) So they're hopeful. They want their money back. But they're certainly not selling the women to the highest bidder. The women have the choice in who they want to marry. Most of them are going to marry the rich guy. I mean, this is the 17th century. Marriage is an economic partnership. Uh, There are complaints during this point. I have one quote from um, uh, a minister talking about how everyone in his parish, all they ask when talking about who to marry is how many sheep does she have, right? It's, you know, he's lamenting this, but this is how most people got married at the time. Marriage was an economic transaction. Uh, The idea that you're not marrying for love is not a criticism, that's a modern day view of what marriage should be based on. And it's one of the reasons that these types of marriages are now seen as problematic, right? Because if you're marrying someone that you've never met before, chances are you're not in love with them. Chances are you're doing it for other reasons. And if the only acceptable reason to get married is love, then this is problematic. But it wasn't problematic at the time. This is exactly how they probably would have gotten married anyway back in England, except now they have better prospects, right, because they are um, a more valuable marriage partner because there are so few women. So, okay. Uh, The women are also given a lot more power. And this again makes sense. So they're given land. They're given dowries. uh, They're given their choice of husbands, they're also given much better inheritance rights, uh, much better legal rights. So a lot of women actually are able to contract during this period. Most women in the 17th century in England, um, well, all of them, are under a system of coverture, which means, it literally means covered woman. And that means that if you get married, well, when you get married, your legal identity is covered by your husband's legal identity. You cease to exist. You existed as a legal entity before marriage, and if he dies, because that's you know the only way you're going to get out of this marriage alive, uh, then you can exist again. But during that marriage period, you have no legal identity, so you can't contract, you can't own land, you can't you know, sue, you don't exist except for your husband. Um, and Lots of the rules of Coverture are relaxed in the Virginia Colony because women have more power there. So one of the things that's very interesting is that a lot of these women wind up becoming quite rich, and they become quite rich through inheritance. Now, this is one of those uh, double-edged swords of the high mortality rate. A lot of the women had many husbands, because, you know, the first husband dies, and then she inherits his property. And she has much, much better inheritance rights in Virginia than she does back home. In, in England at this time, she has her dower rights, which is about one-third of the property. But in Virginia, most of the men leave the women more than that. Many times they leave them all their property. So, you know, a couple of marriages along, and you're sitting on quite a night's nice nest egg. It becomes actually so, so common that uh, these southern widows have so much money that there's a law that's proposed in Maryland during this time to force widows to remarry, because they're worried about all these women with so much money and power. But because the women have so much money and power, they defeat that bill. (laughs) It didn't work. so one of the other things that's interesting during this period, it has to do with their actual para- power on the marriage market. So there's a very interesting case that I talk about in the book that I love about this woman, Cicely Jordan. And she herself is probably not a military bride, but it gives you a sense of what scarcity of women can do to women's power in the colonies during this period. So she's in uh, the Virginia colony during this period. Her husband dies suddenly. And like within two or three days, the Reverend Pooley comes a calling and she's like, OK, uh, sure, we can get married. But you know what? Like first husband over there, he's still not even cold. This is kind of unseemly. Let's just Shh, don't talk about it. And police like, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. So, of course, you know, the second she turns her back, he goes out and tells, like, the entire town that they are now engaged. And she is pissed. So, <laughs> well, wouldn't you be? I mean, she had one request. Just don't make me seem like, you know, an awful person. And he can't even do that. So she calls off the engagement, which sounds reasonable. I think most of us would do that. Uh, but... Under the law at the time, she can't do that. So that's a breach of promise to Mary. And uh, she has promised in front of witnesses. She didn't realize this. It sounds like I don't have the full story, but there's a Captain Madison who appears to have overheard them. So maybe Pooley wasn't so sure if she was you know, going to say, continue saying yes. So Madison seems to be like outside the window. He overhears the promise. <laughs> so now we've got a witness. So basically, it's a slam-dunk breach-of-marriage case. Um, She has promised in front of witnesses to marry Pooley in the future, and now she's calling off the engagement. It's also been uh, well-established that even though breach-of-marriage cases are usually brought by women during this period, because usually it's the women who are more hurt by a broken engagement, that uh, the, the English courts have held that men can bring these cases too. So it's not not that he can't bring the case. The fact that he brings the case shows that he considers himself, you know, the harmed party by this loss of marriage. So he brings a breach of marriage suit against Jordan. And this puts the Virginia company, the Virginia Council, in a real bind because... The law is on Pooley's side, yet they do not want to rule for him. Because they don't want women are a scarce commodity. They're unwilling to force women into marriages. They're unwilling to punish women for exercising their marital choice and preference. So it goes to the local Virginia Council, which sits on it and they say, um, well, it's a really close case. It's not. And they say, we're gonna send this over to London. So it goes to London, and there they sit on it a little longer, a little longer, and then eventually they say, you know what? There's been no decision so long that you need to withdraw your suit. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what happens when Pooley withdraws the suit? He has to pay Jordan damages. <laughs> okay, that sounds about right. So you can see, even though the law, is, and this is not what would be happening in England at this time. It would be the exact opposite. Jordan would be in trouble. So she gets away with it, but the Virginia Council's like, well, okay, this is probably not a great thing to have happen, so we're going to pass a law now saying that you can't do this. So they pass a law that says that, like, after the third time you do this, uh, you might perhaps be punished. Okay, well, guess what? Eleanor Sprague comes along. She does the same thing. Uh, or even slightly less sympathetically, she contracts herself to two men at once. (laughs) Okay, so this is a bit of a problem. The Virginia Council is like hemming and hawing. They decide she needs to be punished. So she has to go into church like the next Sunday and apologize. Okay, so then they pass another law. I mean, it just, they, they don't have the power, meaning the government doesn't have the power at this time to control women in the way they're being controlled in England at this time. And, you know, eventually, when we hit gender disparity in the Virginia colony, these uh, women's rights are reduced. But during the colonial period, when the male order brides are coming over, there is a real incentive to do this. You are given money, status, and legal power that you are not getting at home. So this was the first chapter I worked on. And I was looking at that. I was like, there are risks. No one's going to say that becoming a military bride is not risky. However, there are lots of benefits. And the benefits and the risks seem very related to the laws in place at the time and the type of protection that the government is willing to give to the women. So when the government protects the brides that are coming over, then, and the women come over legally, I'm not legally sorry. Willingly, uh, this can be a very attractive option for a lot of the women. The women had the same reasons of coming over as the men, and a lot of them did benefit from being military brides. And what happens in the Jamestown colony is then repeated. So the next uh, the next group of military brides are the ones that I mentioned, the Fida So they are very similar. They're the ones that go up to Canada during this period, and. One of the things also that's going on is we're having a fight for control of North America, right? So we've got the English, we've got the Spanish, we've got the French, and the French are a little behind. So Jamestown has this first set of brides to really establish the colony and once the colony is established, they don't need male marriage, marriage anymore. Women are coming over. They're growing the population on their own through uh, you know, increased birth rates. The English colonies are pretty established. The French colonies are not doing so well. Um, I was talking about desertions to Indian tribes in Virginia. In Canada, everyone's leaving. Um, And it's interesting because originally they weren't concerned in the same way that the English were about intermarriage. They actually thought that intermarriage would be a good thing, that through intermarriage they would convert the local Indian tribes to Christianity, to French culture. They wind up setting up a uh, scholarship fund basically for Indian women who convert so that they have, not scholarship, more of a dowry fund, so that they'll pay their dowry so that they can marry the French men it's never used because, according to the the nuns in charge, they couldn't find any Indian women who were suitable, who you know, had converted to French culture. Um, but the opposite is happening with regard to the men. So there's an interesting exchange between a group of Jesuit priests and a group of Huron leaders. And they had done this exchange where the Jesuit priests had sent some colonists into the Huron tribe to convert them. They're having a meeting to see how this is going. And the Jesuit priests say, well, how was it? Is it working out well? And the Huron leaders, oh, yes, they're making great Hurons. (laughs) This was not what the Jesuit priests were looking for, right? Uh, So quickly, the idea of intermarriage gets scrapped there. And they decide, well, what else are we going to do? Well, Jamestown seems to have had an interesting idea: sending over women, then the men will stop leaving for the Indian tribes in French, there's even a word for all of the men who deserted. I took Spanish, so I can't really uh, it's like men of the woods, cure de bois I'm sorry, um, but I mean that's how often it was happening there so the French government, they they look at what happened in Virginia, and they decide to do something similar. So they create the Fida program, which winds up being about 800 French women who come over to establish this colony, because they're also getting very worried with all of these desertions and the lack of immigration that the English are starting to encroach on their land. The English are totally trying to do that, right? They have their eyes on all of this French land. uh, And the way that they're gonna stop the English is if they actually have people to fight them. If there's no one there, the English are gonna take it over. So they write to the French king and say, we need lots of immigrants. And the French king says, "Mm, no, I think I'll just send some women, quite a few women, and we'll increase the population naturally which, like I said, they did manage to do. These women had lots of children. But the, the similarities between the programs are very interesting because they do the same things. They don't take desperate women. They don't take poor women. They don't take sick women. They uh, There's a particular process, very similar to what happened in Jamestown, where they the women need references. They need references from their priests about their moral character, about... Um, their, uh, their characteristics and their attitudes, are they hard workers, all sorts of things. So you need this letter of reference to become a male or a bride, both in Virginia and in France. And after they get this, then they pay their dowries. They are the daughters of the king, which refers to the fact that the king is paying their dowry to come over here. And the French government, like the English government, also protects them. So the way the English women were protected, right? one of the strong ways was that they had their choice of men. They're not forced into marriage. They're protected uh, while they decide who they want to marry. So they're housed, they're fed, and they're not rushed into it. The same thing happens in France. So the women have you know, separate lodgings where they're guarded by nuns, um, and the women start dating. Right? The women come over. Very few of them get married right away. Uh, the, I think the average wait time is about five months in France, uh, in, in New France. Um, and during this period, they're not pressured They're dating the men. And what's interesting is you can see that they're taking their time and changing their minds. So the women and the men assign marriage contracts. But you can find the documents, and you can see that a number of women sign marriage contracts with quite a few men. (laughs) So they would sign marriage contracts with the first guy. And then, well, then they changed his mind. Sometimes you see that they then signed a marriage contract with his brother. You know, like, I guess they went home to meet the family and decided, hey, Um, and then sometimes they went back to the first one. So the women are protected in changing their minds. They have the time to do what they want, um, to figure out who they would like to be married to. Uh, And the men have to impress them. Uh, In some of the writings about this period, one of the nuns in charge approvingly talks about how, you know, the smart ones check to make sure the men have, like, good houses, as in, you know, warm for the winter. They're being very sensible. They're making sure they have men who could provide for them. Uh, The marriage contracts are very interesting because, again, it's about the reason the women come over is because they believe that this is going to be a better choice for them right, that they're going to have money and power and social status that they can't have back in Europe. And in these marriage contracts, lots of the women are promised, basically uh, given an an exit strategy. So if the marriage doesn't work out, if the man dies, they're promised quite a nest egg. Uh, So it's not as risky for them. Right? They have the time to get to know these men. And then if it doesn't work out, they're also protected on the back end of the marriage. Some of the other stuff that's going on is you can see that the women are just more respected in the colonies. So one of the um, one of the French customs that I talk about in the book is again a word I'm going to mangle, chevalerie, which is the, the custom of humiliating men and women who break social norms. And some of these social norms, uh, well, many of these social norms are directed primarily at women, women who are considered uh, morally questionable. One of the ways, uh, for instance, widows who get married too quickly. Well, you can see why in the colony that might not be considered such a bad thing. We don't have that many women. We're going to let them get remarried a lot quicker. Um, So in France, you had to wait a long time, and if you didn't, you could be stoned during this raucous chivalry, Um, and uh, in New France that doesn't happen at all. There are actually all of these uh, reports of widows getting married when they're quite visibly pregnant, Uh, so even sex outside of marriage wasn't uh, condemned in the way that it could get you condemned back in France, and one of the most interesting legal differences that I found was the fact that I've said the women are not forced to marry Right? The women can take all the time they want. They can even not marry. A few of the Fidera don't marry. They decide that they're going to become nuns and hang out there. That's clearly not what you know, New France was looking for. Uh, but they're allowed to do it. The men are not allowed to do it. So there are these laws that are passed basically saying when a ship of women arrives, if one of them wants you, you better marry her. And if you don't, you're losing all your hunting privileges. So the women have all the time in the world. The men, however, better step up and get married or, you know, they're going to have punishments uh, inflicted on them. So in both Virginia and New France, where the government protects women, where they incentivize women, Miller marriage winds up being at least an attractive option, a legitimate attractive option. There are problems, things can happen, but if you are a... 17th century woman, and you're looking to improve your your life prospects, this is a real option for you. The Louisiana Miller Bride program winds up being very different. And it shows that the opposite. When women are not protected by the government, when they are forced into these marriages, then miller marriage can be a very terrible thing. So the Louisiana program starts out the same way. It starts out with, we're going to find, you know nice, strong, healthy, marriageable young women. But from the beginning, they start lying to them. So New France is not actually that bad a place to live. Louisiana apparently was terrible. Um, And it's hot, full of disease, and no food. So instead of telling the women, in France, that this is what Louisiana is like. They actually, they just lie to them. They say, oh, Louisiana is a land overflowing with milk and honey, you'll have a life of leisure there, you won't have to, you know, do anything, it'll be great. So the women, and they're recruiting in Paris, and the women in Paris are like, that sounds good. Who wouldn't want that? So they actually almost have kind of a lottery. The women are competing to be Louisiana mail-order brides. Well, that would be fine if what they told them was true, but it's not, so the women get off the boat literally in the middle of a famine. And they take one look at this land of milk and honey. They turn right back around, try to get back on the boat, and they're barred by the ship's captains. They cannot go back. And it's very clear that these women, they've been lied to, and now they're basically being treated as prisoners. They can't go home. Most of them do wind up getting married, because what else can they do? But they are much less committed to this. Many of them do leave when they are able to. They actually revolt at one point. Uh, It's something called the Petticoat Rebellion. And even by that name, you can get a sense of how seriously the French government took it, right? So if you look at the French governor, the Louisiana governor's um, description of it, he says that the women are upset because they're Parisian and used to find French food and don't like corn. (laughs) That is not what they're upset about. You lied to them, you basically imprisoned them, and they're starving and unhappy. No, it's not corn. He says, and then there's this um, mythology around it that the women were then appeased by Creole cooking because now they had spices for the corn and that they didn't mind. So that's how we dealt with the Petticoat Rebellion. I mean, that's when you know, history is written by you know, not the women there. Uh, <laughs> so OK. Um, but word gets back to France that things are not so good in Louisiana. And now they're having problems recruiting more women. Because if you hear about that, you're not going to come, right? The Fidara, they had 800 women. They had multiple boats. The Jamestown Brides, there were about 140 of them. You had uh, two shipments of them. The Louisiana women, well, word gets back. They're having problems recruiting. They wind up scraping together a small ship of a couple dozen military brides, these women are desperate women. They're sick, they're poor, uh, and they come over, and believe it or not, they're treated terribly. I mean, they're, these are the only women they can find, and the colonists look at them and say, they're not hot. We don't want to marry them. So they're left to starve, basically. There are accounts of how one of them has gotten married. The rest are basically living in poverty, starving to death. Well, after that, you're not getting any more volunteers for the Louisiana program, right? So what the government decides is, well, the reason the program didn't work is nothing to do with what we did. It's because the women weren't pretty enough, right? If the women had been prettier, then the men would have married them, and then it would have all been fine. So our number one criteria now is just to make sure that they're good-looking. Uh, well, how do you force good-looking women to come? I don't know. They, they start, you know, raiding the jails. And they find a lot of prostitutes, like I said, who are full of pox. Um, who, they find criminals uh, who come over and, not surprisingly, don't get married. They just continue being criminals. Um, and after they do this program for a while, uh, Louisiana is now a disaster. There are all these accounts about how the Louisiana colony is being overrun by bad women. And they're like, whoa, how did this happen? Um, one of the things that's so interesting about Louisiana is obviously some of these women did stay. They got married. They had children. Um, and the, their descendants didn't want to acknowledge that this is who their uh, ancestors were. So they create the myth of the Louisiana casket girls. And casket is a bastardization of the, the word for small box, which is like cassette. Um, so it's nothing to do with like a coffin. And these were supposed to be different than the corrections girls. So the corrections girls were the ones that came from the penitentiaries. The casket girls were the nice middle class girls, basically the feet raw, um, who came over. And that's who their ancestors were. And let me tell you, when you're doing research on this, I'm trying to search the casket girls. And I see all these accounts of them. And I'm trying to figure out when they came over and what ship they came over on. And there'll be an account saying, well, they came over on this ship. So I start reading about that ship. Hmm, no, that was a ship of Ursuline nuns. Well, how about this one? And it's like, no. There were only, you know, and eventually I was able to figure out that they didn't exist. The casket girls were the correction girls, but you know, the Louisiana nobility, or you know, leaders or whatever, didn't want to acknowledge that, uh, you know, their great-great-grandparents were, you know, prostitutes and criminals. Um, so the colonial male-order bride period teaches us a lot about male-order marriage in general, and the, the patterns will be replicated over and over. when. Miller brides are encouraged and protected and come willingly. Uh, then this can be a very good choice for women. When the women are not protected, when they are abandoned and. Um, I keep using the word unprotected, uh, then it can turn out very, very terribly for them. So it's not Miller marriage by itself, but it's very connected to the laws in place at the time. If the women are respected and treated well, then historically, this was something that really provided options for women. Um, In terms of this, you see this repeated. The the next set of Miller bride cases, expeditions, are the American West right? After the gold rush. So if you've ever wondered why Western states are the first states to give women the right to vote, it's not because Wyoming used to be a very liberal state and has changed. (laughs) No, no, it's because it was full of men. And the men wanted women. And they realized that if you give women rights, a lot of them find that attractive, and will come. And uh, you know, the women's rights advocates at the time were actually encouraging women to go to places where they're wanted. During the 19th century, there was this big surplus woman scare. Now you can imagine being a surplus woman. That's ugh. you know, like I don't want to be any place that considers me a surplus woman. <laughs> I want to go someplace where they want me, right? So you had mass exoduses of women from the East Coast and from England to, you know, to the Western states, both uh, United States and in Canada, where due to the gender disparity, they were wanted and they were encouraged. They were given good jobs. They were given property rights. They were given divorce rights, and they were given voting and other types of political rights. Um, And... Even today, the reason that uh, women tend to become Miller brides is because they, you know, just like all immigrants, right? They think they have more opportunities through Miller marriage. Now, the reason they become Miller brides and not other types of immigrants has to do with our immigration system. If we got rid of the marital preference, the spousal preference in immigration, we'd have very few Miller brides. But given the fact that you can jump to the front of the immigration line by marrying an American citizen, all of a sudden, Miller marriage is offering you a very strong incentive because now you can come to the United States. So the the book shows how Miller marriage can be both protective of women but also can fail to protect women if the government is not uh, involved if the government is abandoning their responsibility to these women. But if the government does protect them, then this has been something that historically has been good for both the women and the men and the United States. And this is a pattern that, you know, from the colonial period to the present, has provided real benefits for all the parties involved. So thank you so much. And I welcome your questions. <laughs>
0: <clears throat> Excuse me. entertaining and informative about a topic that's little understood. Uh, it does bring to mind the show Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, coverture and the property rights that the immigrant women would receive sometimes. How did that play out for their daughters and granddaughters?
1: For their daughters, it was usually Okay. But as time went on, uh, they lost these rights. Because once you get to the point where women are not a scarce commodity anymore, then a lot of the laws from England that were already on the books uh, do start getting enforced. So that is a problem. You see this happen also out west as well. So for instance, California was one of the most um, welcoming states for women. Uh, giving them some of the greatest property rights. And then California actually hit gender parity really quickly. And then as soon as they do, it changes. So it's an incentive for a period, but it didn't necessarily last. So that is a problem.
0: You mentioned a uh, woman uh, moving to a town called Maidstown. So what happened when the women married? What happened to their property? Was it rented out? Did they try to run two properties? Gen- I would assume the gentleman had his own property.
1: Yes, he has his own property. The, um, Maidstown, there's a bit of a problem with Maidstown, which is shortly after the women come in 1620. There's the 1622 Indian Massacre. Uh, so it didn't wind up getting distributed because a lot of the women did die. So it was good in theory. It would have worked very well. But uh, there were some intervening factors. In other places where the women do get property rights, um, part of uh, the incentive is that they have those rights during marriage. So they get to keep their property as separate property that they can use during the marriage. Um, And because sometimes, you know, uh, there's an interesting advertisement from a woman out in California as well, where she's advertising herself uh, as a a bride. And she says that if you want to marry me, here are all the things that I can do, but you need to give me basically $20,000. But if... We had been under the system of curvature at the time. He would have given her $20,000 that she couldn't then do anything with. So California changed the law, so if he gives her $20,000, it's her money. So now it's not so risky for her to get married anymore. She's got money, plus California during this period legalizes divorce. So again, not so risky. If he stinks, she can leave him. And there are all these other guys just waiting. There are all these letters, these really amusing letters from women talking about how it's all the rage to leave one guy for the other guy. And, you know, Half the women here have come for that purpose. So the men know that if they're not good, there's someone else waiting in the wings to take their wife. Uh, sorry. I have a couple of quick questions. Uh, Did couples ever start coming to the colonies? And the second is, did uh, women from Scotland come? You talked about London women, English women, but what about the Scots? Well, couples definitely did come. Um, That's how they started. They came over with family groups. But then they were having a really hard time... the wives in those couples were putting their feet down as much as they possibly could. They said, we want to stay in England, you can go and seek your fortune, it's too dangerous, we don't want to come over, and these family groups were not coming to the southern states. They were coming to the northern states because they were coming to escape the religious persecution. Um, I don't know specifically about Scotland, but there were all these women's immigration um, societies set up in Britain in the 19th century. And they were encouraging British women in general to immigrate to Western Canada to go to British Columbia. And I think a lot of Scottish women were part of that. But I don't have uh, specifics on where the the women who immigrated to Western Canada were from.
0: I was wondering if it was a record of any Pregnant women accidentally
1: coming over, and if his children ever came over. Okay, so those are two very interesting questions. Um, there is no record of a pregnant woman coming over, but there are records of women who are already married. So <laughs> one of the things, this was particularly with the Fida Ra, um, you know, you don't like husband number one in France, well, you just say, hey, I'm single. You get They're not asking that. I mean, they're asking questions, but you can kind of, I mean, this is still like the 17th century. You can get around it. They do find out sometimes that you were married, and they kind of let it go. Uh, so this was one way that women could kind of move on from previous marriages uh, at a time when that wasn't allowed. Um, I don't know of any particular pregnant women who came over, but one of the things about modern male brides that's so interesting is that a lot of the women come from countries where being a single mother you're dead in the water for marriage now. So you've either had a child out of wedlock or you're divorced and have a child. And the men in places like Russia or China, you're you're just used goods. They don't want you. So you're not marriageable anymore. Whereas American men who are seeking military brides, they don't mind that. Actually, many of them like it because they're looking for families. They don't mind having an instant family. So one of the incentives for a lot of the modern military brides is that they can... <laughs> they can bring their children into this marriage and be accepted and get married and have someone to be a father to their kids, which they can't find at home.
0: We have time
1: for one more after this. Thank you. There's a a term that I've heard in relationship to real estate holdings called (laughs) fem sole. Yes. Is that part of this law that well, one of the things uh, that happens in Jamestown, in Virginia, in the Virginia colony, is that you do have women who are fem uh who are married women, who normally wouldn't be able to um, conduct business, and they are given the right to do so. I don't know if, if even given the rights, the term they're just allowed to. So it's not so much that the law has changed, but. Married women are doing this based on the fact that they do have power in the society. And that is one of the, the indications that they have this power, that they're able to hold a position that they wouldn't be able to hold uh, back in England. You mentioned 1620 and 1622. Really, what time frame are we looking at for this, i use the word shipment loosely? (laughs) The first brides arrive in 1620, and then there's another shipment the next year. Then 1622, there's the Indian Massacre and things kind of uh, halt for a while, and the Virginia Company runs out of money because this passage is pretty expensive. So... That's the period that we're talking about. Uh, the most successful of the colonial ones is the one that happens in France, and that goes on. That's later. That's, I think, in the 1660s, uh, but that goes on for many, many years. Um, they, uh, it's a 800, more than 800 women come over that way. The Virginia Brides were 140.
0: Thank you all for joining us. Marcia, thank you. Thank you.